this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, grow a champagne. In vogue, the market for it has never been thirstier. So what's all the fuss about? S.E. Avalan, M.W., is my guest this week, a world authority on champagne. She'll bring us her critical assessment as she shares insight for her special report on grow a champagne for Club Onologique. Grow a champagne has seemingly never been in greater demand. The fashion for it is fueled by a greater interest in provenance and a love for all things artisanal. The term generally refers to a champagne produced by the person who grew the grapes. And that is something of a novelty because many of the big names in champagne tend to buy at least some of their grapes from growers. While there are plenty of growers who choose not to go through the process of making a champagne. So what's the current state of that grower champagne market? Well, we know that it's hot, but uh, how is the quality? Essie Avalan, MW, is a world authority on sparkling wine, and she's just completed a marathon assessment of 320 examples of grower champagne for a special report in Club Analogique. And I'm delighted to say uh, she joins me now. Essie, uh, welcome back to The Drinking Hour. Hi. Thank you, David. It's uh, lovely to have you back and uh, a fascinating subject too. Before we get to the nitty gritty of the report, I gave a very basic definition there of the term grower champagne. Is there a, a kind of rigid definition of what makes a grower champagne? Well, the idea basically is that the grower grows uh, all the grapes, uh, him or herself, that, that the champagne is made of. Uh, and uh, on the champagne labels, traditionally, you've been uh, seeing with the small prints, uh, the letters RM, Recolta Manipula, meaning the grower who also uh, makes the, the wine themselves. I mentioned how in vogue it is. It is really quite a sensation at the moment, grower champagne, isn't it? Yes, uh, definitely. When we're looking at the at the press uh, or the restaurant wine lists, uh, it's uh, the grower champagnes have uh, have really surfaced uh, quite quickly, uh, now fetching uh, amazing prices. Uh, they're some of the most sought after champagnes at the moment. I mentioned uh, there the kind of search for provenance and the love of things artisanal. Um, I gave that as my kind of assumption behind the growth in grower champagne. Am I right? Is that really what's driving it, do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So it's really a part of this back to the rules, back to the basics, back to the soil. 
back to the hands that uh, that make it. Um, so it's very much what we are witnessing today. These uh, wines made in a very sustainable way, possibly organic, uh, biodynamic, using uh, as little any any additives and so forth. So as pure and transparent as possible. There are plenty of experts who swear by grower champagne. I have friends who drink little else when it comes to sparkling wine, and um, they would insist it's the best champagne you can get. But I'm assuming it's not quite as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that when we're talking about grower champagne, uh, we are mainly talking about this, uh, say, couple of hundred names maximum, more more like less than a hundred names uh, in the total pool, pool of over 2,000 producers of grower champagne. Uh, not all of their, their quality is great. Not all of them are sustainable at all. So we are really talking about this, this cutting-edge new wave uh, producers of terroir champagnes. And there are those who caution that grower champagne is much more susceptible to the vagaries of vintage and vintage variation. Is that a fair criticism of grower champagne versus what we sometimes call the grand marks? Uh, obviously, the houses have uh, have bigger blending options when it comes to if a certain region in Champagne has a problem. If a grower is based on that region, of course, uh, there's a problem. Um, but uh, but I think it's more the size that uh, is is might be a a. Uh, hindrance to the grower because it's it's it is easier it's more rewarding to make champagne in larger volumes you know the you can blend them to perfection uh, polish them and the wines keep very fresh in large volumes so it's definitely tougher to make uh, make champagne in small volume and i see that quite a few of the top performers in your um, list in the report are making non-vintage. And and I had always thought that grower champagne sort of tended to be vintage specific just because of the problems of of, of having to have a huge library of, of reserve wines and that being difficult for a smaller producer. So does it tend to be more vintage specific or or are you seeing more non-vintage examples? Well, I think it's uh, the same as for houses as well. It is the non-vintage that is the bread and butter of basically all producers but there are some uh, who do release uh, even their vintage cuvées so early that they don't um they can't get that designation of vintage champagne so 36 months on lease and therefore even if the wine is made 100% of a certain vintage uh, the label might carry non vintage on it oh i see okay well uh, tell us about the report then and how you went about assessing these grower champagnes yeah, it was a great, uh, actually, two-month uh, project uh, when I was touring in Champagne, um, uh, visiting a lot of the, the most interesting producers. But then we also contacted a quite broad uh, but well-selected list of growers who we knew that uh, might have a chance of doing very well in the report. So we put like the, the sort of 88-point uh, uh, limit as the threshold of making it to the uh, report um, because that those that's the quality level where I think that wines are recommendable um, above uh, eighty eight points. So basically, um, uh, we organized big three day tasting in centralized tasting in Reims where we collected all the all the the samples. 
So I tasted them openly this time, uh, each producer's range at one one go so that I could put them into perspective and uh, and look at the prices, the origins, the varieties and, and winemaking and so forth. So I tried to put also in the in the, the tasting notes quite a lot of information about the grower and the making of the wine and the terroir especially. So you're not judging blind here as you would when you're leading the sparkling judging for the IWSC. You're looking at the labels. You know what you have in your hand here. Exactly, exactly. Yes. I, th- I find that it's beneficial to do both of these things. Uh, blind blind is blind and then it's only the wine uh, that talks. But obviously when, when you know much more about it, when you have information about especially, you know, the specific terroirs, um, it's, it gives useful information um, to the consumer. And I think that the tasting notes are much more relevant. And you're factoring price into your equation when you come to a score are you uh, not not that much not really no um it's later on one can look at the value for money but the assessment is is for the for the for the wine kind of in that respect it's like when you're doing it blind it's a qualitative assessment largely yes. disregarding yes. any thoughts about price yeah okay that makes a lot of sense and you presumably know uh, personally a lot of these growers Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there were some that I didn't know, uh, but largely, yes, I've been following them for, for a number of years. And I'm quite happy, I must say, that uh, I'm I'm liking at, at the moment grow, grower champagnes a lot. There's a lot of uh, new guys coming, new guys and girls coming all the time every year. Uh, numerous uh, new exciting um, ones. And, and I'm finding that the style is coming less uh, less oak dominant there's definitely lovely oak influence in many of them but not so dominant and also you know i'm not a big fan of oxidation in the wines and and definitely i think that the the newcomers are really really careful about oxidation so i'm i'm enjoying it at the moment a lot yeah i was curious about that and exploring it a a little bit more that point on oxidation there just for those listening who love champagne but don't necessarily know how to make it what are you getting out there what what's the sort of the risk there with the oxidative process yeah i mean naturally of course the process of uh, making uh, champagne is reductive as we we age the wine such a long time on the on the yeast list in the bottle but the wine can be oxidized before it hits the bottle already so um uh, then we are getting this sort of um especially if you're working with barrel or small volume you're not not careful at every point in the making um there can be a bit of uh, too much of oxidation too much of an oxidative style which which uh, many people consider a legitimate style but but i think the aromatics very often get get very simple and aptly straightforward there's like this this veil of oxidation that hides all the all the lovely nuances in the in the wine so i don't really consider it welcome at all there's of course the noble ex- oxidation what comes you know over uh, over years in the bottle uh, bringing those lovely complex aromas but that's different from this sort of premature oxidation that's the kind of deliberate part where the age is effectively naturally conveyed through the the presence of some slow very gentle oxidation that's right Yes. Okay. Well, well, which is delicious, I I have to say. Um, You talk here, talking of delicious, increasingly you're seeing that many uh, growers seek transparency, purity and mineral tension, and a number of them achieve that 
even with uh, very low sulfites. That style there, that purity is something that you're seeing really emerging in grower champagne, is it? Yeah, I think it's something that, you know, people really want to make uh, the terroir speak, you know, uh, as transparently as possible with little masking as possible. And of course, in Champagne, we have very exciting uh, terroirs, uh, say many of the chalky soils, uh, where you have this sort of um, naturally mineral imprint. And at the moment, when the climate is getting uh, warmer also, there is this question of, you know, Champagne's minerality, how, you know, minerality is hard to, to explain or interpret, but, you know, a lot of it also comes from acidity, but now it cannot only be acidity. You have to maintain that tension in the wines and you, you do get that tension from the soil. It's interesting you mentioned minerality there because um, when I uh, talk to uh, consumers of, of wine, you know, they're often very curious about exactly what minerality means. Now, I, I have my own definition, but um, frankly, yours is going to be a lot more interesting. So um, if someone tell, asks tell you... Me, tell me yours, David. I'll tell you. Okay, well, when I talk about minerality, I ask people to imagine that they have picked up from the, the purest uh, mountain stream with incredibly fresh water. Um, they've picked out a very, very smooth pebble from that mountain stream, and they've kind of licked that pebble, which sounds possibly slightly bizarre, but but it's incredibly pure and refreshing because you have that pure mountain water and you have that lovely, cool, smooth pebble. Uh, that's mine. Uh, I don't know what you think of that, by the way, as a definition. You're yeah, welcome. That's a very, very, very eloquent, uh, eloquent minerality there for you. Yeah, no, it's lovely because it's very much about that, uh, that sort of texture, that, uh, that um, mouthfeel, that di- it's sort of dynamism, it's tension, it's that sort of, um, you know, wines feeling very much alive, even without out the bubbles. It's, um, I really love minerality in wine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, beyond champagne, you know, a, a really good, fabulous Sancerre or something like that, you know, that you get that uh, that wonderful freshness. When you guide people towards the wines they love or the champagnes they love in this case, uh, they, they normally uh, start to sort of grasp that uh, mineral um, point. It is um, I- incredibly important. By the way, um, how do you go about um, really achieving that um, in your champagne, what's the best way of of showing minerality? Well, I think it really is. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, it um, it's about the age of the vines, uh, how how deep the roots go, wh- where the wa- vines are. I think you know this just example of of say uh, say crystal champagne, which comes from chalky mid slopes over 25 year old vines so and and then you try to make the the wine and as transparently as possible so really not masking it with too much oak or too much uh, batonnage or too much anything that's really when when you really want to maximize that uh, that uh, sensation of minerality in the wine and uh, as you say you're you're finding producers doing this very successfully it sounds from the conclusion of your report like you're seeing a kind of new generation of growers emerging here alongside some of the the great names among the growers 
Yes, definitely. I mean, we we uh, have had our pioneers and and uh, the next wave, but I'm really finding it fascinating now. The new ones that are are coming, a uh, much broader spectrum of of styles. Uh, like say in in the report, uh, uh, the the wines of Paul Gosset, which are made in a very intuitive way and uh, and uh, really like. Uh, in in uh, without sulfur additions largely and he still manages to to make make it work uh, and the wines are superbly deep and complex and they they come with a lot of a uh, lot of character so far from that sort of standard uh, standard style of uh, champagne uh, what we knew before uh, just um, mention a, a few other names if you wouldn't mind for those who are looking out for new examples of, of grower champagne assuming they can get hold of these because of course they're vanishingly rare very often because the production is so yeah, low maybe and so high yeah, yeah. Exactly, and many of the top performers in the report they are single vineyard champagnes. So, uh, so do not only restrain yourself to those because they are often quite expensive and 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 uh, hard to find. Uh, but just have to mention some names at the very top of the report. So, uh, so for example, Oli Skolan, who from the much you know not so noble origins in the Coteau du Petit Morin makes wonderful uh, champagnes and amazingly immaculately uses his barrels to bring this sort of, I wouldn't want to use the term Burgundian uh, when we are in champagne soils, but those wines are just so beautifully crafted uh, uh, that, you know, the Blanc de Blancs are just sheer perfection, at, you know, with uh, with uh, uh, 48 to 60 uh, months um, on, on lease. Very, very complete and complex uh, champagnes. Then also um, in the report, um, uh, the wines of um, Charton Taillet did very well, where there is a lot of, also from uh, less famous uh, terroirs in Murphy in the Massif de Saint-Thierry. Uh, he has a very unique way of making the wines. Uh, they, he lets them grow rather freely uh, in, the, in the making process, and there's a lot of soul, soul in his fine wines. Probably the most pedantic and skilled oak user in Champagne to me is Vilmart, whose wines are so stunningly well-crafted and they have uh, such long-lived champagnes that it's really, really um, beautiful. And one of the strongest ranges I found were, was for Suenen, who is situated in, in Cramont and in the, in the very noble origins of Chardonnay. And he really does an incredible job in all through his ranges from the, from the entry level uh, to the single vineyards. So those would have been some of my top names in the report. And it's definitely worth looking at the report in detail for some of those names for those who want to uh, at least try to discover some of these grower champagnes. Um, from what you're saying there, to make absolutely excellent grower champagne, you don't have to be in those very top sort of Grand Cru areas of the Champagne region. Yeah, I think that's uh, quite uh, curious because often when we when we look at the the Grand Mark. Uh, Top cuvées. They always come from the Grand Cru addresses. But here, you know, in 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 this case, uh, the top ten had uh, had. I think it had six wines out of the uh, the the Grand Cru's um, zones. So um, I think it's incredible. It it tells about you need to be both a great vine grower and a winemaker to really be able to craft craft uh, these uh, these um, artisan wines. Is it fair to say that you're likely to get 
a greater sense of terroir with a grower champagne? Well, I think we're mainly with the grower champagnes. We're of course talking about uh, singular terroirs with the with the Grand Marc. We're mostly talking about blended wines, and when they make a single vineyard, often the the sort of house style is rather prominent there. I think what is fascinating in the grower champagnes is that you can you know you can learn so much. It's an intellectual. exercise as much as it's palate pleasure that you know you can taste these pinpoints in the in the champagne universe uh, different villages or you can find you know in the in the in the report for example in the top 10 of my blanc de blanc uh, favorites there was from Villemart and ure frere uh, a, a single vineyard wine from the same plot uh, a chardonnay found its way to the top 10 which was incredible to to compare you know two interpretations from the same plot Uh, by two excellent growers. Talking of grape varieties, you report, by the looks of it, the the greatest success with Chardonnay. Yes, definitely. I I think it was, I was a bit surprised myself that uh, I think nine out of my top 10 were Chardonnays. That's of course that there, it's a very popular style among grower producers. You know, when you're based on the Côte de Blanc or in, in say, Mongeux or or um, Villers Marmere, you're likely to produce nothing but Blanc de Blanc. Uh, so um, in that case, I'm not surprised that a lot of the top wines nowadays are varietal wines, single vineyards. So um, it's not a surprise. Uh, and it's also not a surprise because, you know, Chardonnay is an easier variety to master. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's easier uh, with the nature. It yields better, more consistently. Um, the rot is, isn't such a problem. Uh, and also in the cellar, it's not so prone to oxidation as the Pinot Noir is. So it's definitely an easier variety to to, to master in many ways. When we talk about Chardonnay, there's a sort of shorthand where we talk about it being the winemaker's friend because it's a very malleable grape. Um, It can be what the winemaker, to an extent, wants it to be. Um, Is that also true when you're making champagne? Does the same thing apply? It's, It's a more malleable grape. Yeah, I think it's it's both, uh, you know, winemaker's grape, but it's also a terroir grape, as we know from, you know, know from Champagne, but know very well from Burgundy that it is able to uh, reflect very well in, in all its sort of delicacy and neutrality. It does reflect the soil as well, but definitely you can add on a lot uh, to the complexity of Chardonnay with the work in the, in the winery. Let's talk about Pinot Noir then, because uh, you say in your conclusion that Pure Pinot Noir champagne is a much more demanding style to master. Why is that? Yeah, it's a some somehow um, you know a lot of the Pinot Noirs of champagne they are heavy autumnal. It's just you know many times the blends just seem to require a little bit of Chardonnay for the added elegance and the freshness and the liveliness. So I think that you know it's um, it's not uh, not an easy variety at all, especially because it's prone to oxidation. I mean, it's still considered the king of the grapes in Champagne, and and uh, and many producers consider it much superior to Chardonnay. But definitely, uh, as in the in the making of red wine, it is uh, it is um, challenging. That's what surprised me slightly, because as you say, Pinot Noir tends to have the edge among the critics historically, at least. Is that something that's changing? Do you think Chardonnay in Champagne is is having a a greater sort of level of acclaim? Well, definitely, you know, Chardonnay's share has increased a lot uh, recently. 
prices uh, we fetch for Grand Cru Chardonnay is extraordinary. It's in very uh, high demand. But I don't really think that it's it's taking over from Pinot Noir. I think that a lot of the the, the classic producers of, of Champagne really do appreciate that sort of depth and complexity Pinot Noir uh, can give and are not looking to to uh, to change that. And then we have Mernier, which I often refer to as the Cinderella grape, uh, which might be a bit lazy of me. But of course, there is no Grand Cru Mernier, is there? Only Premier Cru. Uh, well, there is nowadays. I mean, uh, if, if there is a Grand Cru village, uh, any uh, champagne grape planted there uh, is, is um, able to, you know, uh, have the name Grand Cru. I think there is, uh, last time I checked, there was 40 hectares of, uh, of Meunier planted on the Grand Cru terroir. So technically it is possible. But as you can see from the figure, there isn't much of it. Uh, because I think it's been more valuable to put um, put Chardonnay and Pinot Noir there, where, which you know get m- much higher prices as well. But yeah, I think Meunier. There's a great trend for Meunier, and there there's lots uh, that can be discovered still. And uh, I don't think we've by far seen the 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 heights that Meunier can go. It's really that only now, um, in the last ten fifteen years, people are are putting their passion in Meunier, and uh, just wait and see. Uh, I'm sure we can we can in the future get fantastic Meuniers. Yeah, passion for 100% Meunier is on the rise, you say, in your conclusion. And consequently, we are seeing some outstanding examples. Yes, that's right. Uh, that um, Well, there are a lot of producers uh, who really focus on Meunier. I think uh, Alexandre Salmon in, in Chaumusy, uh, I think he produces eight different 100% Meunier wines, some red, some white, some sparkling, uh, some ratafia, things like that. So there's a lot of uh, passion and a lot of learning uh, taking place uh, right now for the, for the 100% uh, Meunier, but it's also not an easy variety to work on. So I think, you know, the best Meuniers are still uh, ahead of us. Why is it not easier to work with or why is it difficult to work with, I should say? Well, it's it's quite uh, difficult in the vineyards uh, because of the way it grows. It needs a lot of uh, work. Uh, and also traditionally in Champagne, people have tried to get very big yields out of Meunier. But if you really want to make great champagnes you should uh, you should really restrict uh, the yields for Meunier too and then in the in the winery it's it's the the oxidation is quite uh, prone to oxidation so if you use a lot of um, oak many of the examples just just uh, you know uh, show oxidation and volatility so those people you mentioned who are going for 100% Meunier um, they really have to know what they're doing they have to be very determined yeah, definitely, yes. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the um, uh, top scoring Meuniers was uh, was uh, Alexander Chartonnier's um, Le Bar, which is a very uh, unusual um, Meunier uh, produced from ungrafted vines. Uh, so uh, so these um, vines, rare vines going on their, uh, growing on their own roots. And he really lets them, it's a wild animal and he really lets it uh, grow quite wildly in the barrels and, and, and bring a lot of, uh, you know, uh, soul, soul to the wine, much more than he allows uh, the Chardonnays to do. So it's, it's intriguing. 
Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating. And taking a bit of a risk as well um, with ungrafted vines because of the threat of phylloxera, is that something that you see very often, ungrafted vines in Champagne? Uh, there are some uh, some producers having them, especially on the Montagne de Reims and obviously Boulanger as well. They're rare, um, they're interesting, but as you said, there is al- always that risk that one day uh, the phylloxera will will get the the vines and then you will need to replant. Yeah, terrifying. Is grower champagne represented evenly? Because you mentioned there, you know, there are many hundreds of, of growers uh, making grower champagne. Are they represented evenly across the champagne region, or are they more represented in specific areas? Well, uh, I've actually never looked into it exactly, but I would see, I would think that most of the ones that produce their own champagne would be uh, located in the Marne uh, area. So much more in the Orb, um, for example, the growers uh, would would have traditionally sold uh, the grapes to the negociant. But nowadays, we see a lot of a uh, lot of growers, grower producers emerge. From from the orb and but also um, from Vitria. Okay, so it's it's um, something that is kind of spreading. We're seeing more growers, I'm assuming, become interested in producing their own champagnes. Well, not really, because I mean there is uh, more than uh, two thousand true grower producers, so ones that are not using a cooperative to vinify um, the wines. Uh, so there are many, and actually the numbers are going down. Uh, oh. And it's because of the, you know, a lot of the, um, it's, you have to be quite, uh, uh, quite the Renaissance man to be able to, you know, grow the grapes, uh, do the wine, do the marketing, do, uh, do the bureaucracy uh, and the finance. So um, it's a tough job. And uh, especially in the, in the, you know, international world with the changing market structures, um, many find it impossible and are, are stopping production and sticking to the to the um, production of grapes or even renting out their vineyards. So it's not easy. I mean, from the how much we talk about in the about them in the media and how praised some of them are, it's not the whole reality actually. That is really interesting because, as you say, because it's in vogue you assume that more people will want to do it. But it it sounds like you have to be very good at a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. So it's uh, for a a small operation, uh, you really need to to be brilliant at everything. The rewards are potentially uh, significant, uh, however. Uh, That brings us neatly onto prices. And um, you mentioned that you've seen a gigantic jump in grower champagne prices, and it's something you follow with concern. Yes, I mean, um, still a few years back, I mean, grower champagne, even the the great names, uh, they were considered, um, uh, you know, the value, good value options. But now really the situation has changed so much and uh, and many of them fetch very high prices which is of course I'm, I'm very happy that champagne and, and these growers are doing very well and they're getting added value to their uh, to their production but but it's also a little bit dangerous uh, for the consumer because you know this interest can change very quickly and uh, when it's not really about value for money when it's about the scarcity, uh, determining the prices when we're talking about these top single vineyard champagnes. It's like when we talk about the Grand Cruz of Burgundy. The price is not has nothing to do with the value anymore. It's it's about the, the, the scarcity. 
Yeah, interesting. And some growers have taken steps to avoid their champagnes getting into the secondary market where people can effectively speculate with them. I think that's right, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Because we've seen a lot of speculation lately uh, with some top vintages, especially the 08 and then producers like uh, like um, uh, Jacques Selos. I think that there are many who really want to control the, the consumption, but the one that I, I think is being more, most successful with it is Ulis Colin, who wants to sell the wines to the restaurants to, to make sure that wine-loving uh, consumers uh, still have access to them, that they don't all go to these collectors. And when you're the size of a typical grower champagne producer, you can, to an extent, uh, control who will buy your product. Yeah, it's a very unusual situation, of course. Uh, um, but, you know, some, some of these guys are, are so small and in such great demand that uh, they have been able to, to pull that off. So looking through your uh, scores, uh, 96 points was your highest score, and you gave that to a number of those in your top 10. Just tell us how you're assessing what you're looking for um, and what makes a 96. Yeah, I mean, 96 uh, uh, for me, they're really high, uh, high scores. So it's, of course, a combination of a lot of things. Uh, I think uh, complexity, the overall harmony, would be one of the the main things aromatic purity i really do want my my champagnes to be perfectly clean and pure um the the intensity of the fruitiness uh the palate structure the length the energy i do want there to be energy and tension on the palate finesse and of course one of the the key um key characteristics is also longevity and how are you assessing longevity you're looking at based on uh, the structural components, what you consider the, that longevity to be. Yeah, exactly. The, how the harmony is now, how, much is the, uh, how developed is the fruitiness, uh, what is the length, is there, does it feel that there is more to come, um, and so forth. And as you mentioned, um, it's rare that you um, give a, a 96. Um, I have uh, judged sparkling wine on a panel under your auspices, and I know you're a very you know, uh, uh, demanding uh, judge. And that's a, a very good thing because people look at your scores and 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 they will uh, follow uh, the scores that you give. Do you ever kind of um, get sort of stuck where you can't quite decide whether it's a 95 or a 96? Or, or are you very certain normally when you come up with those numbers? Uh, normally, I'm quite uh, quite certain. It, it's I taste so much uh, that there's a lot of uh, intuition uh, to it already. Of course, I might consider it a little bit, and you know, certain wines actually need uh, need a bit of time uh, to open up and show the the their um, you know uh, the way they're going. Are they are they opening in a positive way, or are they sort of breaking down quickly? So I might then then um, change my score, but usually. Uh, usually I can make it quite quickly and and uh, and stick to my my uh, my first score. And I'm sure these uh, producers are delighted with their scores. Um, just a final question. Um, we normally uh, talk about a desert island wine of some kind uh, on the drinking hour, but I've talked to you before, so we've kind of done that. But out of um, this selection, if you had to go back and you could only have one, and I'm assuming it would probably be one of the 96 pointers, but you know, if you had to go back and have one just to really enjoy right now, and you had that full range available to you, uh, this might be a horrible question to ask you, but yeah, which one would you go back for? 
I know that you know I I've answered that uh, that desert island wine question for you on the houses uh, so I need to do it on the growers as well and there is one wine that I would never say no to in no circumstance I would always want to have it and that's Ulis Collin Les Enfers so it's it's one of those uh, single vineyard um, Chardonnays um, of of Ulis Collin absolutely uh, complete and beautiful wine well it sounds wonderful and and frankly if um if if that's the one you're going for then i, I imagine there are plenty of people listening who will uh, know your work will be thinking well i'll have a glass of that too thank you very much it's a fascinating report great that you've put an enormous amount of work into into doing this um and uh, it, as i say makes fascinating reading so uh, essie thanks so much for uh, sparing the time to come on and talk to us about it on the drinking hour thank you david the drinking hour with david kermode in partnership with club onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits okay it's time to round off after all that uh, champagne with a few spirits. The results for 2023 at the IWSC have just been released after judging a month ago. Over 4,100 entries from 98 countries. Uh, wines, by the way, not judged quite yet. That happens next month, and I shall be involved with that. Looking forward to it. Uh, this year in the spirits category, 99 entries were awarded a coveted gold outstanding medal. In addition, there were 379 gold medals, 1,417 silver and 1,512 bronze medals. That is a lot of tasting. The Glendronach Distillery, 21-year-old Parliament single malt Scotch whisky, was a gold outstanding medal winner with 98 points. I mention this, obviously, because it's a great medal, but also because master blender Dr. Rachel Barry who's in charge at Glendronach, was my guest recently for episode 100 of The Drinking Hour. Really enjoyed that. Uh, Well done to her and the team. Of this particular uh, single malt, the judges said, rich fruitcake on the nose with sweet and spicy cloves, leading to a balanced palate of dark chocolate, savoury notes and firm tannins, giving complexity and balance and finishing on a long, juicy raisin mouthfeel. Rum performed incredibly well this year. Havana Club International Anejo 15-year-old Grand Reserva Rum won a gold outstanding medal with 98 points. Uh, the judge is overseen by Ian Burrell, a previous guest here on The Drinking Hour. He's uh, a great listen if you missed that. And here's what the judges said under his auspices. Uh, Lifted aromas of orange and pear fruitiness, a touch of poppy seed spice with juicy pineapple on the palate, well-balanced vanilla and fine oak with a very elegant creamy peanut length. Incredibly complex and a real joy. Heavenly, they said. Here's another gold outstanding medal winner, one of my favourite tipples, actually, an Armagnac. Bactar Spirits 1973 Armagnac won Gold Outstanding, the judging panel overseen here by Joel Harrison, a Mousquetaire d'Armagnac and a regular guest here on The Drinking Hour, uh, talking about his passion for um, all sorts of spirits, but uh, Armagnac being uh, most definitely one of them. And here's the tasting note, zesty blood orange and Karani leather with raisins, dates and burnished oak, 
aromatic and rounded with expressive wood, tar concentrates at a perfect balance of chocolate, dark vanilla, honey and sugary soft spice on a long and satisfyingly chewy finish. Time for a gin. Uh, when isn't it? Time for a gin. Uh, this one's from Down Under. Four Pillars Distillery, Bloody Underhill Vineyard Shiraz Gin. A really innovative producer here, and their Bloody Shiraz gins are just fabulous. Uh, this one uh, won a gold outstanding with 98 points. The judges said a lusciously bold, expressive gin supported by an unyielding backbone of rippling Shiraz. Radiant on the palate with wonderful flavours of smooth vanilla, spiced fruit, white pepper and a deep pool of cool eucalyptus on a gorgeously herbaceous finish. Love that tasting note. Finally, another gold outstanding gin winner. Uh, This one from a bit closer to home. Number one, Isle of Skye, 57 degrees, sky, earth and sea gin. Also won 98 points. Uh, Gold outstanding then. Uh, The tasting note, the nose is oozing with fresh juniper notes combining with lemon peel, citrus, floral notes, coriander and cardamom. Herbs and earthiness shining through on the palate. Well integrated and good mouthfeel with overall balance and roundness showing a great typical gin. That's the uh, tasting note from those really in the know, those judges. Uh, I happen to have recently tasted that particular gin and it blew me away. It's uh, really absolutely delicious. And as the judges said, it just shows wonderful gin character. They don't always, uh, these uh, sort of premium gins, but this one really does. Absolutely fantastic. So well done to uh, them on the Isle of Skye. And that is it. Thank you for joining me on this edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to S.E. Avalon, M.W. Uh, Don't forget to head to clubanalogique.com to find her champagne report. It's uh, emblazoned across the front page of the website. And you can also find my column at Club O2, uh, not currently emblazoned across the front page, uh, but they're all the same. So do please do that. And you can follow us uh, on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, you can follow Club Analogique. You can follow Food FM Radio, or you can just follow me, or you can do all three. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.